Well, we're going to be um, we're going to be concluding our well. We may be concluding. <laughs> it depends how quickly we move. Uh, but I am hoping to conclude today um, our final passage of scripture in First John. So, if you would mind, uh, open your Bibles to First John chapter five. And we're going to be looking today at verses 13 through 21. That's eight verses. That's very aggressive for me. But we're going to try and do this. Um, and if we don't, we'll be here next week, you know, God willing. So praise the Lord. Uh, we started, we embarked on this original study April 24th. So they, today's October 16th, right? So about six, six months to do about five chapters. And today we're going to review some of the final words of the Apostle John found here. Now in chapter 5, he's really beginning to sum up. He's summing up what he has written in the entire epistle. And he's doing this, he's speaking again to the first century church. And as we started out, you know, he wants to leave the church with some final words. Words that are going to leave an imprint on the church. And one of the primary reasons he's doing this is because, remember, the church was being threatened by Gnosticism. And I, and I just want to let you know, it wasn't just Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the primary doctrine that he's defending against here. But in the first century church, there was the Judaizers who said, well, you know, faith in Christ is not sufficient in and of itself. And you need the law, and you need circumcision, and you need to observe the law, and, and grace alone was insufficient. So you had the Judaizers, and then you had other various sects that were coming in. So the gospel was under attack, much like the gospel is under attack today, with various isms and various social theories and cultural theories that they're trying to integrate into them. And John has a genuine fatherly concern for these churches. We saw in 1 John chapter 2, he, he writes them little children. You know, my children. This is, this is the paternalistic instinct, the spiritual paternalistic instinct that John has for the church. And by the way, you could, reading 1 John and reading even the Gospel of John, you could see that John didn't view himself as some educated professional you know he was the expert and all the other people were you know unintelligible people that couldn't figure out what to do john is concerned and he's concerned about gnosticism and he's concerned about the confusion that it has brought into the church simply put he is concerned he is really concerned for the souls that remain and so he writes this letter now, throughout the epistle of 1 John, and one of the reasons I've really come to love 1 John is primarily because it's very black and white. You know, the one who practices sin is not of God. The one who doesn't practice sin is of God. This is the way John has spoken throughout this epistle. But John has been reinforcing truth all throughout, and he's going to do this in the final eight verses as well. 
And upon closing this letter, John's going to sum up for us, he's going to sum up for the church, four critical truths, four critical truths that he wants to impress upon them, that he wants them to know. And these truths are relevant to us today. Those four truths are, number one, that you would know that the believer has eternal life, as we'll see in verse 13. Number two, that the believer has confidence in prayer. And we'll see that in verses 14 through 17. Number three, that the believer is freed from sin, verses 18 and 19. And then number four, that the believer may know, that the believer may experience God. I have entitled this message that we may know God. That we may know God. If there's ever a truth that I want to impress upon anyone, anyone regarding the gospel, regarding the new birth, it's this, that we may know God. That we may know God. God. And as we're going to see, these truths were discussed all throughout the epistle. He brings them together again to remind the believers of the riches that they have in Christ. And in so doing, it will encourage us in this day of confusion. So let's take a look at the first truth that John brings here. The believer has eternal life. And to look at that, we're going to pick up from verse 13. We, I closed the sermon last week with verse 13, but for context, we're picking it up at verse 13. And verse 13 reads as follows. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this verse sums up John's purpose in writing this epistle. He does not want the church, the believers, listen, he doesn't want the church or the believers to be defrauded by something less than Christ. There's a lot of that going around. We don't want to be defrauded. We want all of Christ. And the first thing that we can conclude is contained in the first two words, these things. So it should prompt you to say, what things, what things specifically is John referring to? And it is all of the epistle that he had wrote. This is the summation. All these things that we have discussed, all these things I have written to you, he says, to you who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, they're all for one purpose, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's very clear. And the answer, he asks two questions. He answers two questions in this verse. He, he, the verse he answers, the why he has written this epistle, and he answers to whom he has written this epistle. And it's very clear right from the beginning to whom he has written it. Take a look at verse, th verse 13. I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. 
That's specifically to whom he's writing. John, as I mentioned to you previously, referred to them as my little children. He had that pastoral instinct. He knew that people in the church were not mere members, but they were souls, they were lives. And as a good shepherd of Christ, as a good under-shepherd, that he's to love these people. Well, how do you love them? The way you love them is to give them the words of life. And so he writes to those that are believers, words of edification to the followers of Christ. Listen, in John's gospel, in the gospel of John, he writes very similar words. If you want to turn there to John chapter 20, verse 31. Hold yourself in 1 John 5, but turn to John 20, verse 31. In John 20, verse 31, listen to how he begins to close the gospel of John. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In 13, he says basically the same thing. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. This brings us to the other issue that John answers there. And this is, why was this written? And he lays out very clearly, so that you may know. I want you, if you're circling your Bible, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down K-N-O-W. Circle it in your Bible, underline it in your Bible, that you may know that you have eternal life. This knowing is not merely process of information. It's not a collection of data. It's not intellectually grasping. It's not theologically comprehending. As we've seen throughout this epistle, That word to know means experientially to know. And to experientially to know involves the merger of information with the reality of its truth. How do we experientially know God? Well, the word of God reveals God to us, but to the believer, that knowledge is apprehended, it's comprehended, and it's translated by the power and the presence of God in our life. That we would know God. We were talking about this before service. That there are a lot of people who know the Word of God and how it is a profound difference between knowing the Word of God and knowing the God of the Word. And we need to be men and women that know the God of the Word. And if we know the God of the Word, we're going to understand and know the Word of God. And so John is writing to them the very purpose for this, that you would know what specifically does he want them to know. That you have eternal life. Eternal life. John presented a clear, concise, compelling gospel message to these readers. 
but with the emergence of the false doctrine of Gnosticism, with those that left the church to follow it, and the relentless attack of false teachers, it had taken their toll on this young church and had shaken them. And John writes once again to compose them. He wants to compose these believers. He wants to get them centered centered and grounded in Christ. And he wants to assure these believers that they are in fact standing in truth. And that in doing so, in doing those things, they may know experientially that they have eternal life. Unlike the world outside us, truth is not validated. And I want to make this point. Truth is not validated by general acceptance or the opinion of the culture. That's how the culture acts. You know, majority rules, consensus. Well, everybody believes this is okay. But that's not what validates truth. Rather, truth is validated by God and his word. We as Christians have to remember that as we live in a day and age where uh, social norms are changing rapidly, right? And it was our Lord Jesus himself who stated this in John 14, 6. You guys should all know this, right? I am the way. I am the truth, says the Lord. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christ's statement there deals with the exclusivity of Christ. And he says it mostly to a people who will, in fact, reject him. I'm the way. He doesn't say, I am one of the ways. He doesn't say, I am a truth. What does he say? I am the truth. To the world, truth is an opinion. To the believer, truth is contained in a man. And that man is Jesus Christ. He is truth. And he is life. Speaking earlier in his ministry, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who told the Samaritan woman, remember this, in John chapter 4, 23, you know, when she asked them the famous question, you know, you Jews say that to worship God, you got to go down there in Jerusalem in the temple, and, and we Samaritans, we worship God up here in the mountain. Where do I go to worship God? Remember Jesus' answer to her? An hour is coming. And now is when true worshipers shall worship in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. They worship in spirit and truth. Listen, when we come together as a church, this is why many times I give an exhortation time and time again. When we come together to worship God, filter out the outside noise, filter out any other distraction, filter out what you might be doing. Come together and worship God in spirit and truth. Why? For such worshipers the Father desires to worship him. The truth is that believers in Jesus Christ have eternal life. 
I want to make a statement about eternal life because it doesn't merely define continuity of life as we know it. We think of eternal life, and for the most part, we think of eternal life as we're going to live forever. But that's not exactly the eternal life that Scripture speaks of. That's part of the eternal life that Scripture speaks of. But eternal life that Scripture speaks of is to know Jesus Christ. To know means to be found in him. John uses the term in 1 John time and time again to abide in Christ. You know, if you come to Christ, if you are saved from the moment you were saved, you will never die again. Right? Well, look at death on this side of life. It's just a closing of an eye and a stopping of the heart, but the soul continues to go on. And what do you have? You have life with Christ. Now here's an ugly truth. The unbeliever too shall live forever. But not same as the believer. Not same as the believer. They'll live forever and face the wrath of God and face the judgment of God and the penalty of God in hell. And it's just a simple truth. I don't delight in saying that. I say that because it is true. Eternal life is a present possession of all believers, of all believers. And not something that we have to hope will come one day. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life today. Today. Hey, wasn't it our Lord Jesus who said in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son, what does he have? He has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall abide upon him. The Lord also said in John 5, 24, Truly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Praise God. The internal world of knowing the Father is open to us who believe. Access to the Father, the indwelling Holy Spirit, supernatural, divine instruction, and interaction with the God of heaven, gifts of the Holy Spirit, God molding us and separating us from life of sin that used to characterize our lives. Thoughts of heaven, love for others, and an overwhelming love for God. This is what characterizes eternal life. Oh, brother, sister, friend, may it never be that we have an indifference to God because we think we know something about him. No, let the passion for God, let the passion for Christ, let the passion for the gospel be the one signature characteristic that defines our lives as Christians. Let other believers and let other Christians look at us and go, that man, that woman has a hunger and a thirst for God and there's something different about him. So John here in verse 13 tells us 
to whom he has written this letter, believers, and why he has written this letter, that you may know that you might have eternal life. You know, if we really believe, I really believe with my heart, if we really come to the place of comprehension of that truth, our lives indeed would be different and should be different. Right? We should not be stacked against the world. And I know that the enemy, one of the greatest things he's doing against believers today is he's overwhelming us with the worries of the world, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. He throws it upon us. But if you are in Christ, you have eternal life. And you have access to the Father. Oh, take advantage of that access to the Father. Come before the Father. If you haven't been doing it, do it. Get alone with God. And seek him. The Lord said, hey, anyone who seeks him, he's going to allow himself to be found. Let's look at the second truth. The believer has confidence in prayer. And we're going to look at verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. John reminds these believers that they can have confidence in prayer. That word confidence, it it, it simply means that it's something deserves to be remembered, to be taken seriously. It is the confidence impelling someone, impulsing someone to do something. An undoubting confidence of Christ. That confidence is contained, listen, that confidence is contained in an interactive, transcendent God. What do I mean by that? The confidence is not in me. The confidence is not in my ability. The confidence is not in my intellect. The confidence is not in my religious works. The only confidence that I can have has to come from God and has to come from God through Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. I could be confident of that eternal life because God did it, not because I did it. I was speaking to someone recently and we were talking about um, we're talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And I have been sharing the gospel with this person for a pretty long period of time. And the person made a very interesting comment. The person said, I get it. I get it but I still feel there's something I need to do for God to be forgiven. And I said to the person, I said, the Lord God has given his only begotten son and he left his glories in heaven came down, was born of a woman, born under the law, was 
tempted and subjected to all things as we are, yet without sin, was betrayed, was put on a mock trial, was, although found innocent, treated as a criminal, was mocked, beaten, bruised, battered, stabbed, whipped, crucified, put upon the cross for all the world to see, hung naked in shame before the world, while those under the cross circled him like ravenous animals hurling insults and mocking a man as he was dying, as Jesus on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who died, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to heaven on the 40th day, and is coming back soon. I said, now I want to ask you a question. What could you possibly do to please God apart from that? What could he done? As a matter of fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He proved it to the world by raising him from the dead. And he showed the world, death is no longer master, the grave no longer has a stake. Here is the one who has conquered sin and death. So what could you possibly do? The gospel is like that, right? It is so simple at times that it could be hard to apprehend. And we must remember that. That's the confidence we have when we get alone with ourselves, when we feel convicted about our past, when we think about things we used to do and we find ourselves in that moment going, Father, how could you ever, ever, ever forgive a bum like me? It is in that moment that we can come and we can have that confidence in God that he is holy, that he is right, that his word is indeed true. And we can come and we could fall at the feet and then in prayer have that confidence that what we ask of the Father, if it is according to his will, that he hears us. That he hears us. I want to say something about prayer and about this particular verse. This verse does not imply a blank check that we get everything that we want. Right? There are many answers to prayer. The first answer is no. That's not the answer we like, right? Father, I'm asking you for this. No. It's not the answer. But we can have confidence that God has heard our prayer and decided not to give us what we asked for according to his knowledge that he knows indeed what is best for us. So no is an answer. We agree? There's another answer to prayer. Not now. Or wait. 
Father, I'm asking you. Not now. That the Father has other circumstances, other things that need to transpire before the Father could either acquiesce to the prayer or deny the prayer. But many times in prayer, the Father says, wait, not now. And I know many of you have experienced that in your own soul when you've been before the Lord. Father, I'm asking, you don't feel that green light to go forward. And so you're in a holding pattern. There's another response to prayer. It's a conditional response. If you do this, I will do that. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. It's a conditional response. God calls us to say, will you do this? Will you be obedient in this? Because if you're in obedience of this, then will these other things come. And then there's, I think, the response to prayer we all love. Yes. Yes, I will do it. And that's what we love to hear. God grants our requests. God hears the prayers of the believers. And I want to say that again. God hears the prayers of believers. But I want to tell you something else. God is not under the obligation to answer prayers of unbelievers. But God hears the prayers of believers. And God will always act according what is best for us according to his will. So when God gives us a yes, let's not go crazy the next time we bring something before the Lord and say, well, the Lord answered the last prayer because I did. You know, I fasted three days and I did this, I did that. No, you bring your request to the Lord because God is faithful and true. And he knows what is best. That's why the Paul could tell the church at Rome in Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. It is the prayer of those who love and obey the Lord and his commandments that will be effectual and that will get results. Prayers of unbelief, prayers that are selfish in nature, prayers that seek the glory of man and not the glory of God, those will be prayers that may go unanswered or may go denied by the Lord. In John 14, verses 13 through 14, our Lord Jesus says this, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen, here's an interesting truth. When obedient believers delight themselves in the Lord, God will plant in their heart desires for what delights him. Let me say that again. When obedient 
Believers delight themselves in the Lord. They're taking refuge in the Lord. The Lord is their strength. The Lord is their stronghold. The Lord is their delight. God will plant inside the believers desires for him, which is why the psalmist in Psalm 37, 24 can say, delight thyselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what's the desires of your heart? It's God. It's delighting in the Lord. That that verse has been so misaligned and so twisted. But that is the simple truth. How great would it be to be in a position with the Lord that the Lord would be giving us desires for him? That's why I personally pray for revival. I pray that God would do a work of revival in me. I pray that God would do a work of revival in some of you. I don't know if we'll ever have another second great awakening. I don't doubt God, but the way things were looking, I'm not too sure about that. But it doesn't preclude the Lord from doing a work of revival in our respective hearts. And I pray that God would plant inside my heart that desire for that strengthening, for that endowment of power, for that presence of God to overwhelm me, not for a temporal experience, but to change me, to give me an authority, to give me a power, so that when I proclaim the word of God, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's in a prayer meeting, whether it's preaching in a church, when I proclaim the word of God one-on-one, that the authority of God, I pray all the time, Father, grant that thy servant may speak thy word with all boldness. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. And I know all of a sudden this verse comes out of here, and we go, what, what? What is he talking about? Bear with me. I I hope that the Lord will make this clear. The first thing we need to do when we come upon a verse that kind of seems out of context is to go back to the immediate context. What's the immediate context? Well, the immediate context begins in the beginning at verse 1. And we know in verses 1 through 3, John states that the love of God is evident in keeping his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. In verses 4 and 5, John continues to speak of the believer's victory over the world. In verse 12, John validates eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And as we just saw in verse 13, he has written to believers so that they may know that they have eternal life. And in verses 14 and 15, he tells us we can have confidence in prayer. So, so follow the logic, right? Obedience, right? That you may know you have eternal life, that you can have confidence in prayer. In verses 16 and 7, 
he continues now contextually regarding prayer. For those who may sin and how we should pray for them. And the first thing we notice here is he uses the term brother. He uses that term. If you see a brother. And that word actually means a, another member of the same religious community. So he's referring to a believer here. If you see a believer, right? And he says that there is a sin, and by the way, there isn't one particular sin, so he's not referencing one particular sin, but the condition of sin, that does not lead to physical death. In such cases, believers can intercede for that brother so that he would repent and be restored. You following me? So if there is a brother in the church, if there is a sister in the church, that is gone astray, right? And maybe is continuing. Then you as the church pray for that brother, pray for that sister, intercede for that person. Pray that repentance and restoration come back to that person. Now, this is conjecture on my part, right? We're closing, John is closing the epistle, so this is purely speculative on my part. But I believe that this possibly deals with those who left the fellowship and may have followed Gnosticism or left the fellowship due to the confusion of Gnosticism. How do we pray for those that he referred to in, John 2, in 1 John 2.19? It's the one that he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So continuing with this, John speaks about a sin that leadeth unto death. And this would refer to grievous sins, which a brother or a sister is unrepentant of. This refers to sin that one refuses to repent of. Listen, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks about this in the passage that deals with the Lord's Supper. He says when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're not to come like drunken or, or gluttonous because that's what was happening in the, in the church at Corinth. They came together to celebrate a love feast, which they said was the Lord's Supper, but the love feast degenerated into drunken revelry and gluttonous party. And Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this reason, he says, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Sleep is a metaphor for death. A number of you, God took out. Because your testimony was so damaging to the Spirit of God and to the Spirit of the church. Have we not seen this also in Acts? Specifically in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, when everybody was bringing their sacrifices and they said, well, Ananias, well, I sold my house, I gave you all the money. But he didn't. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, said, why have you chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit and God? And Ananias dropped dead. And then his wife came in. And did you give all the money? Yes, I did. 
you too are going to follow your husband. They're just coming back from bringing them out, and sheep perish. We have seen in Scripture that there are times when there are grievous sins that do damage to the cause that the Lord has the prerogative, and at times the Lord does execute a divine judgment. Paul says at the end there in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord. And he makes this glorious truth which speaks of all mercy in order that we may not be condemned with the rest of the world. So they were believers. Their testimony failed. God said, well, I'm, I got I to gotta do something here. I got to take him out. And so here, this could be for some brothers or sisters that went to follow Gnosticism and brought reproach upon the church. We don't, the net net of it is, we don't know. And can't be dogmatic here. But what we do know is this, that John is talking about, that we can have confidence in prayer. And in that confidence of prayer, we could pray for those who have fallen, and we could pray for those to repent and to be restored rightly in the church. But if there are some that are going to continue and perpetuate in their sin, there may be a more severe judgment that lays ahead. So we know that the believer has eternal life. We know that the believer can have confidence in prayer. Let's look at the third one. The believer is freed from sin, verses 18 and 19. It reads, And we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Simply put, believer in Christ, the one who has been born again, who has repented of their sins, put their complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, the one who knows God, the one who has been born of the Spirit and walks in the Spirit, they cannot walk in perpetual sin. They cannot abide in sin. John states why. John states this. God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. God. You got it right, brother. Praise God. If you are in Christ, no matter what you're going through, no matter how severe the temptation, no matter how severe the trial, just like we can have confidence in prayer, we can have this confidence that we are freed from the penalty of sin. It's a great truth about salvation. There's three elements to salvation, right? God saves us from the penalty of sin. That's justification, right? God saves us from the presence, uh, from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And God will save us from the presence of sin, and that is glorification. Those three comprise our salvation. What a glorious truth. We're saved from the penalty, we're saved from the presence, uh, we're saved from the power, and we're saved ultimately 
from the presence of sin. Sin is not compatible with the new birth and the work of God. Unbroken sin, perpetual sin, is incompatible with salvation. It is the believer in Christ that is given what? New life. Not the old life. We're given new life. And that new life's purpose is to glorify God through salvation. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, and I've said this time and time again, the, that is probably the singular most profound chapter that has changed my life. But he makes this powerful statement. You used to be slaves of sin, used to be bound in sin, used to walk in darkness, but sin is no longer master over you, for he who has died is freed from sin. Freed from the penalty and the power of sin. Let's look at the last one, verse 20. The believer may know God. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Oh, my goodness. It is the new birth. It is the new birth. It's being born again. It's the new birth that opens the believer's heart to God. It is the new birth that gives believers the eyes of the Spirit. It is the new birth that opens up a relationship with God. In verse 13, John stated his reason for writing this in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now here in verse 20, John states that you may know God. John is not referring to knowing about God as I previously stated, but rather that believers may know God. In a personal, in a deep, experiential way. One of my favorite old dead guys is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Man, if you could get anything from him, read it. I love him. I'm reading a book of his right now. I want you to hear how he describes the difference about knowing about God and knowing God. Dr. Jones writes this. I wonder what the church looks like when she estimates herself in terms of spirituality, in terms of the knowledge of God. Not knowledge about him, but a knowledge of him. Direct experiences with him and his presence. Church, You've heard me say this, not new news. John is reiterating this at the end of this epistle, but there's a vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Unbelievers know about God. You realize that? Unbelievers know about God. But only believers know God. Personal, intimate, deep, transcendent, interactive. You know we have an interactive God do you know that? Do you believe that? That God interacts in our lives on a daily basis? That God ordains our steps, the steps of the righteous are ordered by God? 
that God doesn't allow the enemy just to run amok with us, but that everything we experience that God has ordained and God has allowed, and that somehow, no matter how confusing, no matter how hurtful, that God is working that for good in the life of the believer, and he's conforming us into the image of his son, and he is perfecting us, and he is sanctifying us to the glory of his name. We serve a mighty God. Far greater than our minds could ever surmise. And he is a transcendent God. He transcends all the physical boundaries of this universe. And he is a personal God. He knows me by name. My name is written on his heart. I'm written on the palm of his hand. This is the God whom we serve. He's not some guy who hangs up in the ceiling and you do a spiritual 911 call and you go, oh God, I need something. And God goes, okay, he needs something. I'm coming down. Okay, solve the problem. Okay, God, you could go back there. I want God around me all the time. I want the presence of God around me all the time. And I think it's responsible for such a gap. There's a profound gap in the church today between many who know about God, but those that know God. And you know what? The ones that know God are very visible. You can tell there's an intimacy there. There's a depth that is there. As we've reached the end of this great epistle, John sums up the entire point of the epistle. And it's basically this. If you are in Christ, you are serving the one true God. All the blessings of Christ are for the believer. New birth, which produces new life through Christ. We have a knowledge of God and direct access to the Father. Christ has given us his spirit and we abide in him and he in us. And we have come to understand. And here's the best part. And we have come to know the one true God. And in him is eternal life. So what does this have to do with me? That's the question. What does that have to do with you? John's desire, as expressed throughout this entire epistle, is that all would know God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And that should be our desire as well. To make him known. And that is the point. It's not about Bible knowledge. That will come if your heart pursues Christ. But it's about the personal, the intimate, the knowledge of God. Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it best when he writes, I'm not asking you whether you are living a good life. I am not asking you whether you are happy. I am not asking you whether you read your Bible or whether you pray. I am not asking you whether you are active in church work or some other form of Christian activity. What I am asking you is this. Do you know God? Is he with you? Is he in your life? What of you in your personal relationship and your personal dealings with God. Church, that is the question for everyone. May God reveal to us our hearts truly.
and bring us to the knowledge of himself.